Hello and welcome to the Big Picture Podcast. I'm your host, Bidemir Logunde. Today on the show, I'll be talking about how targeted commercial online ads are causing divisions, not just political ads. I'm going to be talking about how the rise of influencer culture has led to the death of hobbies. And finally, how advertisers are literally having anxiety simply because Facebook users are saying no to tracking. Thank you for your time. Let's get to it. So in 2016, the drama that surrounded the Brexit vote showed that the, showed the role that targeted political advertising can play in fomenting polarization. Two years later, in 2018, the whole world found out that Cambridge Analytica had used data that was harvested from about 87 million Facebook profiles without the owner's consent to help former U.S. President Trump's 2016 election campaign target voters in key states in the U.S. with online adverts. So in the years since both of these incidents, we've learned how these kinds of targeted adverts can create political filter bubbles as well as echo chambers, which are suspected of dividing people and increasing the circulation of harmful disinformation as well as misinformation. I talked more about misinformation in episode 37. So as a matter of fact, the vast majority of the ads exchanged online are commercial rather than political. Commercial targeted advertising is the primary source of revenue in the internet economy, but we know very little about how it affects us. We know that our personal data is typically collected, more like harvested, to support targeted advertising in ways that violate our privacy. But aside from privacy considerations, how else might targeting be harming us and how could these harms be prevented? So these questions have motivated a recent research by four academics, um, Sylvia Milano, a postdoctoral research student in artificial intelligence ethics at the University of Oxford. The second um, researcher is Brent Mittelstadt, a research fellow in data et- ethics at the University of Oxford. Then there is um, Professor Sandra Watcher, an associate professor and senior research fellow at the Oxford Internet Institute at the University of Oxford. And then finally, Christopher Russell, who is a senior applied scientist at Amazon Web Services. So their research paper is titled Epistemic fragmentation poses a threat to the governance of online targeting. They submitted the paper on November 27, 2020, and it was published on June 17, 2021. So I'm going to post a link to this paper in the show notes. So these researchers found that online targeted advertising divides and isolates us by preventing us from collectively flagging ads that we object to. So for comparison, in the physical world, people report offensive or harmful ads. For instance, if they see those kind of ads at a bus or train station or an airport or a public park or any other places where public ads are shown. So people report these ads to regulators and then regulators take down the ads. So that's what happens in the physical world. However, that's not, that's not possible online because the information that each person sees on the internet is specifically targeted at them. 
So if you want to check this out, get your friend's phone and scroll through their Instagram or Facebook or Twitter timeline and see the kind of ads you would see on their timeline. It's going to be very different to some things you are used to. It would downright not make sense to you because you are seeing what your friend's online behavior basically portrays them to look like online. So maybe your friend is seeing ads for floss, like for their teeth, and they've never ever gone to a dentist or talk about flossing. That's because people that behave like your friend online typically typically buy dental floss. That's why your friend is seeing adverts for dental floss. So maybe your friend doesn't realize that they need dental floss, but everything about their behavior online matches close to 100% the people that buy dental floss. So simply because of this, if someone reports something online, it won't necessarily rise to the level where regulators can take action because the way ads are online, they are extremely targeted. Two people in the same household may not be seeing the same kind of ads on their mobile devices. That's how targeted these these ads are. And unless we address this flaw by preventing targeted adverts from isolating us from the feedback of other people, regulators will not be able to protect us from online adverts that could then cause us harm. So because online adverts are just too many, human supervisors cannot vet each ad campaign. So this leads us to the use of machine learning algorithms, and they are now being increasingly used to screen the content of ads and to predict the likelihood that ads might be harmful or fail to conform to standards. And these predictions can be biased, as with everything else about artificial intelligence, and they typically only ban the most obvious violations. So among the many ads that pass these controls, a significant portion still contains potentially harmful content. So sometimes um, ads are harmful in a specific context, such as when ads for foods with high fat content are targeted at children. That's just wrong. Or when gambling gambling addicts see adverts that promote gambling. That's, again, just completely wrong. So targeted ads can also cause harm by omission. For example, if ads for shoes crowd out job ads or public health announcements that someone might find useful or vital. So these cases are therefore categorized as contextual harm because they are not tied to a specific context, but rather depend on the context in which the ad is presented to the consumer. And of course, machine learning algorithms are very bad at identifying contextual harms. On the other hand, the way targeting works actually amplifies this this contextual harm and the way machine learning algorithms identify them. Several audits have uncovered how Facebook has allowed discriminatory targeting that worsens socioeconomic inequalities. That's a, a topic for an entire podcast, not just an one episode. So apparently, the root cause of all these issues can be traced to the fact that consumers have very isolated experience online. I gave an example previously about how two people in the same house using the same Wi-Fi can get completely different kinds of ads on their 
mobile devices on their social media platforms. And the researchers, um, these four researchers, refer to this concept as a state of epistemic fragmentation, which is also in the title of their research paper. So epistemic fragmentation basically refers to where information is available to each individual, but it's limited to what's targeted at them without the opportunity to compare them with other people within a shared space, such as a social media platform. So each of us sees different ads on the same website, on the same timeline of a social media platform, and so on, simply because of personalized targeting. And it makes us more vulnerable in the sense that ads play on our human cravings, wants, and vulnerabilities, and they can withhold opportunities from us that we never even knew existed. And because we don't know what other people are seeing, our ability to look out for what other vulnerable people, to look out for other vulnerable people is therefore limited. So right now, regulators are adopting a combination of two strategies to address these challenges. First, there is an increasing focus on educating consumers to give them control over how they are targeted. And second, there's a push towards monitoring ad campaigns proactively and automating the screening mechanisms before ads are published online. Both of these strategies are, however, inadequate. Instead, the focus should be on the focus should be on restoring the role of consumers as active participants in the regulation of online advertising, and this can be achieved by blunting the precision of targeting categories by instituting targeting quotas, or by banning targeting altogether. So this would ensure that a portion of online ads are seen by more diverse consumers in a shared context, right? Where objections to them can then be raised and shared and reported as appropriate. So um, the next segment, I'm going to be talking about the rise of influencer culture and how that has led to the death of creativity. Stay with us. I remember years ago in high school that I had classmates who were extremely talented in drawing and painting and music and so many different things just for the fun of it. So those classmates, um, I'm sure, went on to develop those skills, but some of them that I still keep in touch with, despite not pursuing them as careers. So those were the days when people expressed creativity just for fun. However, these days, social media and the internet have changed all of that. People now have access to low-cost tools and unrestricted distribution channels, and therefore creative work has become only about metrics instead of meaning. Nowadays, the value of a photo is determined by the number of likes that photo is getting on Instagram. Um, Podcasts are now valued primarily on the number of downloads they get per week, per episode, per month, and so on. And the same goes for YouTube channels, TikTok accounts, and so on. Since the rise of influencer culture, bloggers now aim for book deals, Vloggers aim for TV deals, and Instagram models aim for endorsements from designers, beauty lines, fashion houses, simply because they have a certain number of devoted fans 
and engagement on their social media accounts. The rise of the influencer culture has sadly led to the end of hobbies and creativity just for the sake of having hobbies and being creative. So obviously, the biggest beneficiaries of this rise of influencers are not creators, advertisers, or publishers. They are social media platforms and distribution channels themselves. Instagram is the primary beneficiary of photographers sharing tons of their work, and Facebook and Instagram are the primary beneficiaries of the millions of posts that people make daily. Users of these platforms create content for these companies all day long, whether they are getting paid to do so or not. The rise of the influencer has become a potent growth engine for all of these platforms. It ensured that the aspiring creators would keep feeding the social media beast and keep playing stupid games to win stupid prizes such as likes, hearts, and retweets. In return, people got status games, status anxiety, fear of missing out, FOMO, and a whole cocktail of 21st century problems, all of which have been detrimental to human creativity. So personally, I can attest to the fact that there is profound freedom and unlimited fun in expressing yourself, your creativity with no expectations. And clearly, the rise of influencer culture has diminished that. So if your only reason to start, build, or create something is to get rich or famous or earn a living from doing that thing, then you're wasting your time pursuing metrics rather than meaning. And the metrics on social media platforms are slowly destroying our collective creativity. So one of the most detrimental impacts of social media metrics is actually on young kids. I've heard about kids who are primarily concerned about the number of subscribers they have on their YouTube channels, and that is just sad. The tools that kids now have access to could significantly elevate their creativity levels, but that would only happen if they stop seeing the internet as a tool for getting attention and temporary popularity and instead begin to see the internet as a tool for truly expressing their own creativity. Another issue with metrics on social media is that they inherently they are inherently lag measures. So according to the authors of um, the four disciplines of execution, lag measures are things we cannot control, such as clicks, likes, comments, shares, book sales, downloads, etc. In essence, any form of external validation when it comes to creative work are lag measures. On the other hand, focusing on lead measures, which are the things you can actually control, increases the likelihood of favorable lag measures. So another way to achieve this is to focus on the process rather than the outcome. For, for example, by making more sales calls. A marketer is more likely to find someone who will buy their products just by simply making more sales calls. By writing more, a writer is more likely to write something impactful and genuinely worth reading. By taking more photographs, a photographer is more likely to take one that is timeless and breathtaking. So it's no coincidence that some of the most consistent advice given to creatives over the years are to be consistent, diligent, and always seeking to improve their skills. In addition, 
the way we measure our lives has a profound impact on our happiness and well-being. Measuring the quality of our creative work based on social media metrics causes people to confuse attention with accomplishment. So this causes aspiring creatives to pay more attention to how they can increase their metrics rather than improving the quality of their work. They simply don't realize that becoming popular on social media is not a tactic, but rather a byproduct of great work. So the tools meant for self-expression have now become attention-seeking devices where people seek instant applause and gratification instead of the long-lasting connections that take place between a creator and their audience. So while getting paid for your creative endeavors is incredibly rewarding, it also creates a different level of pressure. You're faced with the expectations of publishers and anyone else who has made a financial investment in you. So this is why it's important to have a creative endeavor that has absolutely nothing to do with your work, which is also known as hobbies in the days before the internet. If your hobby does not become your side hustle, you are paradoxically more likely to enjoy it more and it is much more likely to lead somewhere interesting. And even if it doesn't lead somewhere interesting, you will definitely learn something from it. So after the break, I'm going to be talking about how advertisers are literally having anxiety simply because Facebook users are now saying no to tracking. Stay with us. So in early June 2021, Apple sent out an iOS software update that included the option for users to opt out of allowing apps to track their internet activity. Studies have now shown that a lot of people are saying no to that tracking um, option, and that's proving worrisome for Facebook's advertisers who are losing access to some of their most valuable targeting data and I've already started seeing a decrease in the effectiveness of their ads. So people are giving apps permission to track their behavior just 25% of the time since this update was released, thereby um, severing a data pipeline that has um, powered the, the targeted advertising industry for years. Facebook advertisers in particular have noticed an impact in the last month alone. Media buyers who run Facebook ad campaigns on behalf of their clients say Facebook is no longer able to reliably see how many sales its clients are making, so it's becoming harder to figure out which Facebook ads are working. So losing this data also impacts Facebook's ability to show a business's products to potential new customers. It also makes it more difficult to retarget people with ads that show users items that they have looked at online may not have purchased so things like the items you put in your cart both it's been in your cart for the longest time and then facebook just shows you those items again because you're more likely to buy something if you keep being retargeted by by that thing simply because you've looked at that thing before it's been in your cart for a long time but you've just not maybe saved enough to buy it. So they keep sending you those ads just to keep it at the back of your mind to, to buy that thing. So according to Branch, which is a company that analyzes mobile app growth, approximately 75% of the world's iPhone users 
have downloaded the new update to the iOS. According to Eric Sofort, a mobile analyst who writes the um, mobile dev memo trade blog, if approximately 20% of users agree to be tracked, then there's likely to be an approximately 7% cut to Facebook's revenue by the end of the third quarter, and that's by the end of September. In addition, if just 10% of users grant Facebook tracking permission, then their revenue could be down as much as 13.6%. So the way this thing works is most retail websites include Facebook software that sends detailed customer data back to Facebook, including when a Facebook user makes a purchase. Facebook can then use that data to better understand what a retailer's target customer looks like and then show that retailer's ads to other people on Facebook who match that profile. So that process is known as um, looking for lookalike audience. So however, as many people are now using Facebook, or uh, many people are now asking Facebook and other apps not to track their behavior online, Facebook has started to lose access to this lookalike audience data. With a smaller data sample now, an advertiser on Facebook may be paying to reach someone who doesn't quite fit their target audience which makes those ads therefore less effective for the amount of money the advertisers are spending. So missing this sales data also makes it hard for Facebook to properly measure the impact of its ads because media buyers don't know how many sales are being driven by their marketing campaigns. So previously, Facebook would tell advertisers how many sales it made within certain demographic cohorts, such as women in New York City, Um, or 18 to 25-year-old men in Hillsborough County, Florida. Advertisers now say that Facebook has stopped sharing that level of detail with them. So Apple has made privacy a foundation of their latest marketing effort around the iPhone, effectively pushing back against the digital advertising industry that has collected immense amounts of data for years in ways that people misunderstood or don't even understand at all. So those privacy changes from Apple apply to all app developers on the iPhone, not just Facebook. However, Facebook has been the most, the, the loudest voice protesting, protesting this change. And they've been arguing for months that Apple's new privacy features would actually hurt small businesses that rely on targeted advertising, which makes up the bulk of their company sales. That's the, it makes up the bulk of Facebook sales. Facebook said these businesses rely on precise targeting to find customers and may not have the advertising budget for a broader marketing campaign. So all of this sounds um, quite interesting because now you see two big companies basically going after each other indirectly. So Apple is saying they are are launching these new privacy features for every single app developer on the Apple App Store. But we all know that this thing is going to affect Facebook the most because Facebook's business model basically says, give us money and would provide you with data that would make sure make you more able to reach your target audience. And even if this thing goes ahead and impacts Facebook's revenue on the Apple App Store, there's still the, the other... Google Play Store and Google might come up with something similar 
and then also impact Facebook's, Facebook's business on Android devices. So this is, again, I'm talking about this because it's just something to be aware of, something to keep in mind. People, most people use either um, an Apple device or an Android device or something else. Um, some people use both, um, like, like I do. So it's just something to be aware of when just to know what's happening with your data on the devices you use, on, on the social media platforms you visit and so on and so forth. So that's all I have for today's episode of the Beat Picture. The production, editing, fact-checking, audio engineering, and graphic design were done by yours truly. Big up me logging there. Please join me again on the next episode as I continue with a deep dive on cybersecurity topics, news, events, and incidents, and the lessons we can all learn from them for robust cyber threat intelligence and awareness in our daily lives. Make sure you subscribe to the Beat Picture on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Pandora, TuneIn Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Please share the show with anyone you think might benefit from it. And for questions, comments, or any suggestions, please email me at bdme at thebeatpicture.com. You can also get in touch on Twitter at beatpicture. Please remember to leave a review for the podcast if your platform allows you to do so. This will really help to promote the podcast. Thank you for your time. See you on the next episode. Bye for now.